This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we are going to do something we've never done. Uh, Many of you have heard my story, and my co-host Joe has always been this mystery so today we are going to unpack Joe. <laughs> Thank you, Saul. I'm kind of, uh, as I said just a little minute ago, I, you know, this is a little, it is different. And it's uh, the other side of the table, and it's, I'm a little excited and nervous. So I am grateful for the opportunity, my brother. You know, everywhere I go, you know, whether it's through webinars or conferences online, people always ask me, how is Joe? <laughs> Seriously. So Joe is this mysterious, everyone's favorite uncle. <laughs> <laughs> How is Joe? You know, so this is a good moment for people to get to know more about you. And uh, over the years, many of you know that English is not my first language. So every time we come into the studio, I ask Joe, how do you pronounce that last oh, that's, name? <laughs> that's exactly right. It happens all the time. But I've also learned some new words. You know, while sitting next to John recording, I've learned some new words like, what tripped your trigger? (laughs) (laughs) I never had that word before. So I'm like, should I pause and, and, you know, what do you mean? (laughs) That is so interesting because I always think that, uh, that you've, of course, been so Americanized, I guess you would say. (laughs) <laughs> that you would know everything. <laughs> and I mean, that is great that that there that I can teach you something. Many times, you know, people don't know when we come into the studio, sometimes we go through um, some challenges. You know, three weeks ago, I think I was really uh, impressed. You had lost your dog mm-hmm. and your wife had spent the night in the hospital. Yep. And Monday morning, you know, we are right here recording and talking to Paul Nash uh, in England, you know, our listeners don't understand some of the things that go into the background, and I want them to understand the hard work that you put in to be here to record. Well, Saul, I thank you for the opening to that. Uh, you know, we walk in here, and a lot of times I walk in thinking that uh, there is a plan that we have to do, and that we want to, of course, educate. Hopefully also a little bit of entertainment, uh, but mostly to impart some wisdom upon this community that has been part of Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I am so grateful for you allowing me to participate in this with you. When you asked me to do this, I'm like, uh, and this was, of course, over well over a year ago now that we started this thing, and... I thought, well, that's great. This will last a couple of weeks, and then I'll just you know, continue my work in hospice. Uh, but you had a vision for this, and I'm just la- so thrilled and glad to be able to be pulled along on this journey uh, through your uh, strength and wisdom and, mm-hmm. and, and vision of what, we, what you want to have done here with this, with this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we all do things in our life that help us cope. And one of the things that I enjoy about this is I get away from everything. You know, when you say I lost my dog, yeah, that that tears at my heart yet to this day. Mm. Uh, my wife, having had heart issues and being in the hospital for a number of days, not knowing what's going to happen, mm. and then to come in here mm. and talk to others and get away from that for uh, maybe 45 minutes to an hour mm. and to think about what it is that that's going on in the other person's life and what they can then share with you and I. And then of course with the world, now that I know that this goes out to the world, 
Uh, it just, it, it's a haven for me, a peaceful place. And part of that, of course, and I don't mean to keep emphasizing this, it, it's your presence, Saul. Uh, mm. You bring out so much uh, in me, and uh, my wife has noticed it too. So, uh, yeah, we have we have things that go on. I know that. Yeah, We have challenges. And uh, hopefully we can put some of that uh, on the back burner for the time being before we go get back at it. Yeah, I think we inspire each other. And uh, many of you, if you're listening, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you've heard of Joe's magical therapy dog. I think every two or three episodes, you'll hear a story <laughs> of that dog touching a patient, Mizuno. So how are you coping with Mizuno's uh, death? Uh, you know, it's like, you know, I hate to think of it as, as you know, it's like losing my dad when my dad died. Uh, and it's a different situation. Uh, when I got the dog, this, you know, I, I was at the time single and I just, I had my own new home and I wanted to have a dog in my life. I've always, I can't say always, because I didn't grow up with dogs. Mm. Uh, when I became an adult and was on my own, yes, I had dogs. So when I went to pick up Mizuno, uh, I had first seen the dog pictures online, and then I went out to see the dogs. And Mizuno picked me out. I didn't pick the dog. Wow. And I mean, by that, he was sitting in my lap. They put his his head in the crook. Crook of my arm here, mm. and then he looked up at me and licked me on the chin, and I'm like, <laughs> "That's it, you're mine." And then picked him up. He was seven weeks old, held him like a baby, you know, because he was just a little puppy. Mm. And he was, we connected right away from that time that he licked me on the chin until the day that we put him down. Uh, just, you know. Uh, we connected, and it's a weird thing to say that because you don't, you know, there are certain dogs, you know, if you're a dog lover, you know that there's a certain dog in your life that seems to have uh, grabbed hold of your heart mm. and is the, is the dog that you've always wanted, always had, whatever, and always done something special. Well, it was when I noticed when Mizuno was special, and the reason his name is Mizuno, and people say, what is that all about? Yeah. Uh, Mizuno is a sporting goods company. And in the past, I've had a dog that I named Nike and a dog I named Reebok. <laughs> Tell us, why, why sporting companies? Oh, why sporting? I am, oh, Saul, when I was a little baby boy, I wanted to play professional baseball. Okay. I wanted to play some professional sport, but baseball was it. And, you know, I, I was just an average player. Mm. You know, one of those who could hit occasionally, field the ball, throw the ball, but nothing like you see with the professionals that are out there that have that little extra something. And I love sports. I love competition. And I thought, well, okay, I'll go after running shoes. And so I, you know, Nike running shoes, Reebok running shoes, and now Mizuno's. Uh, that's how the name came about. But the first time that after I got Mizuno, I, of course, took him over to see my parents. My dad was living at the time. And Mizuno was in my parents' apartment. And he's walking around the place my dad's sitting in his favorite chair and he walks over to my dad and my dad pets him on the head very nice and whatever and then <laughs> kicks him away more or less with his foot pushes him <laughs> away with the foot he never went back to see my dad <laughs> never. <laughs> never and then of course there's my mom who was you know over you know overdoing it going oh you're such a pretty dog blah 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 petting him petting him petting him and, of course, he followed her oh. <laughs> all the rest of the time we were there. And it wasn't shortly after that, a few months later, that my dad died. Mm. And then it was after that that we went over to see Mom. By that, Mizuno and I. And I'm sitting there in the room, and, of course, we're, we're, we're grieving, and we're talking, and Mom's in tears. And... Mizuno, who is sitting in the middle of the floor, just sits, I can see it, I can visualize it right here in front of me, that he's sitting right there on the floor, and I look at him, and he gets up, walks over to my mom's chair, sits right beside her. Mm. She starts petting him, 
I didn't tell him to go. I didn't tell him to do anything. And she starts petting him and everything changed. And I'm looking at that. I'm like, yes, there's this thing called pet therapy. Mm. And at that point, I came home after that and thought about it and, and investigated and found out what it took for him to become a therapy dog. And it took quite a bit of training, but he caught on real quick. And then we went and got tested, and he was top shelf. You know, wow. he was right up there at the top. And from that point on, I tried, you know, I, I became part of an organization. And unfortunately, with my work with hospice and everything, it became apparent that I couldn't go do the volunteer work that was part of being a therapy dog. You know, it took a lot of time and a lot of, you know, places that you can go and then you wait for them to tell you. And I just didn't have that. So I went and talked to our hospice people, especially our marketing people, and said, you know, this would be a pretty neat thing. And they jumped on it like crazy. And they said, well, when can you start? And I thought, well, okay, let's, you know, so that they could then tell the world that Angel's Grace Hospice had a pet therapy program. Mm. And... uh if I had a dollar for every time a picture was taken of Mizuno, I would have been retired a long time ago. Wow. I mean, he was so beautiful. He was yeah. so wonderful. Such a disposition around people. Wow. And he, he, he knew what to do without me saying anything. And it was just obvious that uh, we would walk into a room where a patient was dying and he'd go right up to them and smell them. You know, there is a smell of death. Mm. And he knew. And he would maybe, you know, just be there for them. And if the person was somewhat able, you know, I would take a hand and let them pet him. Mizuno uh, was not a small dog. He was a 100-pound old English sheepdog. Yeah. So it isn't as though he could jump into bed with someone <laughs> and be with them. Uh, although he did do that once with a gentleman in uh, who had some... Alzheimer problems, issues. And uh, he once jumped into bed, and this guy went, whoa! But he, he I, I mean, I had to almost literally pull Mizuno off the bed because mm. uh, he didn't want to leave him. Mm. Wow. And it was an incredible, I mean, to, to try and remember everything that he did for everybody, I mean, I'd be on here for hours. Yeah. But uh, thanks for the question. It was so special. And our listeners are also familiar with your resilient 98-year-old mother. 97, 97, 98 is coming. (laughs) Your resilient 97-year-old mother, how is she? Mom mom is wonderful. Uh, Just saw her yesterday, as a matter of fact. Mm. And, you know, she she is doing all the aging stuff that she's supposed to. By that, I mean... Uh, she is losing weight. Mm. She's losing energy. She's getting more tired, but yet she fights it. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I'm, you know, she'll make it to a hundred. There's no doubt in my mind, unless something comes along, like she falls or something of that nature. Yeah. Uh, sharp as attack, which I am so thankful for. Uh, my mom, one day when I was visiting her, you know, Joe, Joe, I just can't remember everything. I said, Mom, that's a normal process of aging. How old was it when, when your grandmother, my mother, uh, uh, started having issues with her dementia? Because that's my, she had senility, they called it being senile back in the day. Mm-hmm. And she was like 93, 94. And so I told Mom, I said, I believe it was when, when Nan was 93, 94. Oh, good. I'm beyond that. <laughs> I said, Mom, don't worry. I'll tell you if there's some issues here. <laughs> oh, thank you. So that you know, you, you don't you don't even think about that until you realize that uh, all people wonder about that. You know, if there's some sort of memory memory issues that are going on, and that that mm. that that scared my mom, and she was really concerned about it. So I'm glad that she was able to talk to me about it. She seems like a really sweet mother. What lessons can you share our <sighs> listeners with that she's, she's taught you about life? I know resilience oh, is one, one of them. One, one of it <laughs> is that, and of course, mom was 
Mom would take me to many things when I was a young person. She, now, I remember them now because she, she told me about these things. And it's, it's really led me into this ministry thing, and especially with, uh, with hospice. Um, my mom would say, what my mom told me that every time we'd go to a, an event or some sort of gathering like at church, uh, I would always go and talk to the old folks and, you know, ask questions, whatever it may be that was going on with these people. And she said, you always enjoyed having that. And, you know, and it's to this day that, you know, I have such a, a passion to find out their story because there's so much history there that we don't know. And they think that they've done nothing. Mm. And I think, you know, there's always, we've all done something somewhere along the line. Yeah. Uh, we and our family are trying to be a little prepared, of course, when mom declines and dies. And I went to mom. My sister and I were talking one day. said, you know, mom has done so many things. We don't know what they all are. I said, I know. So I sat down with mom. I said, mom, let's write your obituary. <laughs> she looked at me, what? I said, come on, mom. That's yeah. fine. I just want a list of everything that you've been involved in mm. and where you've been in any kind of leadership or what you've just participated in. Mm. Oh, no, no, no. I said, no, Mom, it, it will help us when the time comes. I said, would you just write all these things down for us, what you've been involved in and everything of that nature? Mm. Hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's too soon. <laughs> it's too soon? Or, yeah, she just didn't want to think about it. <laughs> With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Saul Abam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with our favorite co-host here, Joe. Uh, tell us about uh, your call to ministry. You know, we've asked that question to everybody. Of that's guests. right. Yes. You know, I was thinking of this when I came, when I was coming here. I, I was wondering if you were going to ask me that question, <laughs> and you have not uh, disappointed me. <laughs> uh, I'm considered, when I, was, when I went into seminary, I was considered a second career cha uh, uh, clergy person. Okay, what did you do before that? What did I do? It seemed like everything. Uh, I couldn't hold a job, Saul, for more than two and a half years, and then I'd get distracted, I would... I would just not do anything mm. because I was not holding my interest. And I would do nothing sometimes. And I look, yeah. I mean, I can look back at that and say, literally, that's what happened. Mm. And I went from job to job to job. And they were jobs, not careers. Yeah. And to make income, to help, you know, keep the bills away and everything else. Uh, when I was turning 30, I was looking at. My life, you know, here I am a 30-year-old coming up onto 30. I look back at my life and I'm like, what have you done, Joe? And in my mind, I had done nothing. Hmm. Uh, yes, I'd done, I had, you know, I had a family. I had yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh, I was married. I had doing some things. Uh, but I had no passion. So at the time... We moved to a new church and got very involved in the church. And I was, you know, chair of a certain committee. I did this and the other thing. At one point, there was this advertisement, I guess, a flyer that went out from the church talking about a lay ministry program that our denomination was putting on. Mm. And it was a three-weekend program, and you would be go away for the weekend and you would develop your spiritual gifts, I guess I would call it at this point. Mm. Uh, you know, they they talked about everything from prayer to meditation to church life to everything, really. 
And it was after the second weekend that I came back home and I'm laying in bed with my wife and said, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. What if you think if I went into ordained ministry? And the response I got was, if that is something you have to do. So, okay, I got that, some sort of approval, I guess. Mm. And, you know, I actually prayed. You know, I actually meditated on the whole thing. You took it serious. I took it seriously, (laughs) Saul. Absolutely. Yeah. Because there was this tug. I mean, a a thing in my heart that told me I need to look at this and mean it. Mm. And I I gave it a great, not a really long period of time. It was shortly after the last time that we had gathered as this group that I made the decision Mm. that I was going to go into ordained ministry. And of course, then you investigate what it is that you have to do to get in there. And I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm, I'm this old, you know, I really, I hadn't finished my high school, my college education at that time. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, this is something that I need to do. So of course I went to, I contacted three different seminaries and each of them said, nope, you need to finish your degree. Mm. And I said, well, I've got all this experience. No, you need to finish your degree. Mm. And I thought shucks. <laughs> I would have said something different, but I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I could look at back at that after I did what I had to do mm. and know that was God's plan to make sure that if I'm serious about this thing, because this thing called ordained ministry isn't something you just haphazardly decide that you want to do. Yes. You have to be committed. Yes. That's how I took it. And I mean, I finished my degree Entered seminary. It was the three best years of my life, believe it or not, in my which mind. Which school? Or which seminary? I went that? to Chicago Theological Seminary. Oh, okay. In Hyde Park, Illinois, yeah. or Hyde Park, Chicago. And uh, I, my classmates, uh, you know, majority of them were like myself, a second career clergy person. Uh, we all did things together. We had it all. We would, you know, it was just a wonderful community. And graduation came. I had a call to a small, small rural church Mm. and uh, got ordained. And it was during the seminary time that I I had the, in the middle of the seminary, in your second semester or the second year you're there, there's always this time that you have this evaluation with your advisor Mm. And other members of the of the uh, of the staff, uh, professors, mm. and I went again. I did my prayer meditation thing again, because <laughs> saying, "What if they say you're not worthy?" And I saw nothing. I mean, absolute darkness. And I'm like, okay, I'm taking that as there's nothing else you're supposed to do. There's no other visions of what you could be doing. Mm. And I walk into that evaluation, and I mean, I'm nervous. I'm scared. And I walk out. As I'm walking out, they say, well, you're, you're good. And I'm like, me? Really? Am I okay? Yeah. Yeah. yeah really? Why? Why'd you think so? I'm just, you know, and they said, no, no, Joe. You're okay. You're good. And from that point on, events being affirmed, in that type of fashion, uh, I really looked at ministry as only being church. Yeah, you know, a, a pastor. So then, you, your first job is in a rural church. Oh yes. How did you cope with that? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I took it as an exceptional learning experience because you know I'm not as you say, Saul. It's rural. Yes. I grew up in the suburbs and the urban areas of around Chicagoland. Yes. And I'm out there in the middle of of cows and fields and actually seeing all the stars even. (laughs) And when it's dark, it's dark. And I'm like, I'm overwhelmed. But the the, nature. Yeah, I am. By nature, I'm overwhelmed with everything there. Yes. And I'm like, you know, 
I'm this tiny little cog in God's universe, and I'm here, and I, you know, I feel, you know, and I'm still very much feel like I'm very much a part of of the whole plan yes. of what God's plan is. Yeah, and uh, learned a lot there. The one really big learning experience that I had, quite frankly, it was one at a time when I did my first wedding. And I, the wedding was at the church, and there was a community center within walking distance of the church out there in this rural community, and that's where the reception was. Mm. So I walked over there as I was, you know, the, the, the family of the groom said, well, you're welcome to come to, you know, the dinner. Went and had dinner. I walked up to the, groom, the groom's father. I said, you know, he said, oh, there's going to be beer, beer there. And I said, okay, will this offend anybody that I... Have a beer. Oh no, no, don't worry about it. It's okay. You can have a, you know, you know. Don't worry. I'm not going to get drunk. And uh, went to the meeting. I mean, went to the had the wedding. Went to the reception. Had a good time at the reception. Left early because I didn't know anybody. Mm. I mean, by that I didn't. I was not, you know, not part of the family or anything. You know, made my presence known. Went home. Church was on Sunday. The next day, Monday morning, I had one of the members of the diaconate come driving up quickly into my driveway hmm. at the church home, and I'm like, "What's what's he doing here? What's going on hmm. here? Um, what happened? What did I do now?" Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he comes and he comes to the door, knocks, and I come walk him in. I said, "Welcome him in." I said, oh. and quickly it became apparent that he did not like the idea that I had drank a beer. At the, at the reception. Mm. And so I talked to him more about it, and then he finally told me the truth. His brother was a raging alcoholic, and he did not want his pastor to be like his brother. Mm. And so he let it be known. And so the agreement I had with him was, if you are at any of the activities where there might be alcohol, I will not drink. Mm. And he agreed to this. But it was such a good learning experience to know how it is that your actions... Yeah. How they touch other people's lives yeah. without you even knowing it, and you know, and this is in the small community, and yeah, yes, you're in the fishbowl there, and that was another learning experience about how everybody knows who you are, even though that you don't know who they are, and there are certain expectations, of course, of clergy. They put you on a pedestal and they put you in places mm. that you don't want to go, mm. but you still have to recognize and honor that. Mm. And that's powerful, Brian. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard you laugh. I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew where that was going. I said, "Oh, somebody's about to get a talking to." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you saw that? It was somebody was going to read him the riot act. That's right. <laughs> Not in this town. Okay, so I'll, I tripped his trigger. <laughs> I see. You, you tripped see? his trigger. <laughs> Good example. Good example. So, uh, for how long did you last in the rural? Uh, uh, I was less than two years there. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you live? Uh, it was time. It was time, and uh, I was uncomfortable after a while. And so I moved back to uh, suburban Chicago and found a church in this in the in the Brookfield area. Hmm. And uh, yeah, and the rural church does not compensate well, so that was another reason too. So the suburban church was able to pay more for your young yeah. family and yeah. ministry. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the reasons there. And that that was also an education being in that church because it was an ethnic type church that I didn't know was an ethnic church until I got there. Yeah. On the near west side of Chicago in that Brookfield Lions area. Yeah. Yes. Uh very blue collar. And there were some major industry there that everybody worked in that were now, because of time and changes in economy and all that, a lot of those factories had been shut down. Mm. But yet they were retired and they were there. And it was a, a primary Polish bohemian community. Mm. And my church was primarily bohemian. And when you start talking about stereotypical Eastern European, they are very, very frugal. And so that was a struggle too. Mm, but why? it was nice to know. I mean, these are very giving, lovely people, but yet 
they found it, no, they didn't find it hard. It was impossible to make changes. For the, for the church to give more? Not necessarily giving, mm. just the idea of you had a certain group of people that were in your community, your church community, and to try and change and think that you could bring others in, oh, that okay. type of thing was very difficult for the church at that time. So the church was not very welcoming. Oh, very welcoming, but didn't make anybody feel comfortable. <laughs> Great to see you. Glad, glad you're here. Thank you. And if they don't come back, they don't come back. Yeah. So you come in from the rural setting, and now you're in this frying pan in, in, <laughs> exactly. in Brookfield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what was going through your mind in terms of ministry? Were you reconsidering ministry altogether? Uh, it wasn't there that I started reconsidering ministry. I just wanted to know what is how long I needed to be there before I could go and get my own big church. Oh, okay. You know, that's what I thought I could do. Yes. Uh, not realizing that they're like in every situation, there's politics. I don't play the politic game at all. Yeah. Or if I think I try, it's poorly. Yeah. And I did end up moving from there to the neighboring town where I was in a big church, but I was an associate. And that I was able to work in youth ministry, which was a gift for me because I thoroughly enjoy working with youth. And mm-hmm. we had a wonderful program there. And then I left there under circumstances that I found were not good. And that's when I found that I needed to look at my ministry differently then, Saul. And one of the things that I thoroughly enjoyed was my CPE experiences. Yeah. And so chaplaincy became a focus. I came out of seminary thinking that chaplaincy was something you just just did because you couldn't do anything else. Yeah. Yeah, Very poor approach. But that's (laughs) because, but that was my mindset at that time. So what I'm trying to understand, so you did CPE while still in seminary. No, I did. I did CP in seminary, then I did another unit outside of seminary. Oh, okay, okay. So as you're finding some kind of a crossroads in ministry, yep. you began to lean more towards the CP to, to give it a second chance? Well, actually, to get, get just to be able to do the chaplaincy thing that I did and with what, I, with what experience I had, Yes, uh, I did not do the full four-year program, of, yeah. I mean, the four units of, of CPE. Yes. I did two. Yeah, and find a the, program where I could work with those two and get involved with that. And I did that in a hospital for, it really saved my ministry for about three years. Wow. And then while I was doing this hospice chaplaincy, I was walking through the halls one day and there was this lady walking by and had a jacket on. And on the back of it was a hospice and phone number and all that stuff. And I thought, ding, 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 ding. I'm going to try that. Because I, as I didn't tell you before, hmm. before I went into ministry, I became uh, a hospice volunteer oh. where I lived. And that was, as I look back, that was just prior to me entering seminary. So that was a long time ago. Yeah. And when I f- made the application and got, got hired by Joliet Area Community Hospice, uh, I looked at that as a circle, the big circle of life. You know, you do things, you walk your journey, walk around, and all of a sudden it comes back to where you should have been in the first place. Yeah. And that's where I felt myself, going there. And, uh, you know, I can't look back at that. I mean, that is that is it. That yeah. is where I should have been pr- even before I went into, you know, parish ministry. Yeah. As you know, you look back at that and you get those, get that view, and I said, you know, this is something that could have been doing for you should have for done a long time. all along. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, God has plans, and then you you deal with them. Yes. With that, we'll take a little break. As you're listening today, we turn the tables. I'm interviewing my co-host Joe. We'll be right back. Angels Grace Hospice brings comfort, dignity, and peace to help people with a life-limiting illness live every moment of life to the fullest while providing support for loved ones. We perform hospice care in your home, nursing home, or assisted living community, depending on your individual circumstance. For more information, you can check us out at www.angelsgracehospice.com or you can call us at 1-888-444-8341. To comfort always, this is our work. 
You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, and we continue our conversation with Joe. So um, when you came back, you initially worked in hospice as a volunteer, and that never left, even when you went into parish ministry. What stayed with you? Oh, what stayed with me? Oh, my goodness. Good question, Saul, because (laughs) it really became very apparent to me that, oh, I get goosebumps from it from right now thinking about it, because I love ministering to people in situations that can be challenging. You know, it is, you're, you're talking end of life. That is the, to me, the, the epitome of ability to be able to sit with a family. And whether you're just there and being a presence or offering words, talking about anything that that patient wants to talk about. Uh, it's like, the time I was in the church and I was making a hospital call and the wife is in the hospital room with her husband and her husband has leukemia, has had leukemia a long time. You know, I had no idea where he was in his journey. And I look in and he's sleeping and she's sitting there right beside the bed in there and I I look at her and she looks at me and she smiles. And I said, you know, I kind of waved my head and said, come on outside for a minute. I just want to see how things are going. What is it that I could do? So she steps out of the room and all of a sudden, I mean, minute, not even a minute later, I hear a gasp. <sighs> and I knew what it was, even though I didn't know what it was, but I knew what it was. The man mm. died. And I mean, we're right next to the uh, the nurses station, and there's a doc there. And I immediately said to him, "Doc, need to get in here now." And he called it. And of course, the wife is, you know, caught totally off guard. Hmm. They weren't in hospice. They weren't in anything. They were in the hospital. He was supposed to be going back home after they get him settled, and he dies. So I'm standing there and I feel like I'm a lamp. I don't know what to do. I, you know, I, I, I just don't, I feel like a piece of furniture. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. I'm just there mm. and had no idea what to do under those circumstances. Typical parish minister. Yeah. yeah. Uh, participated in the, the funeral. And, of course, followed up with her and did some bereavement talks and all that stuff, knowing all that. And she, she must have asked me a half a dozen times every time I would see her, Joe, you knew, didn't you? Hmm. And I'm thinking, yeah, I knew he died. I knew he died immediately. Hmm. And she was so grateful that I was there. Wow. And here I am. I pull her out. I mean, look at with my hospice background now. And I like took her out of the room, and I feel guilty because she wasn't there when he died. Yeah, but yet he didn't want her there. Now he that didn't I know want that, her there. that's right. He wanted her wow. gone. Wow. So I allowed him to die in a way that he wanted to die. Yes. But I didn't know any of this stuff, and I'm kind of like, and uh, you know, I, 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 she is just was a most gracious, wonderful person. She was also the one that spoke on her husband's behalf at the funeral, which mm. I rarely see. Wow. And she spoke about her husband and she talked about him. And the one thing, of course, that I remember that she said was how much she was going to miss their sex life. Seriously, <laughs> she said that from the pulpit. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, that's awesome. And I thought, what a way to acknowledge the love that they had. Yeah. And what she was going to miss. And, you know, and he was in his 70s. So I mean, thinking, wow, they had a good, they still had a good life going. Yes. And, but, you know, what I'm trying to get at is I enjoy that closeness mm. very much. Yeah. With, with families. And people ask me, how is it that, you know, as they ask all of us chaplains, you know, how is it that you can do this day in and day out and, and, and all of that? And yeah. I see the beauty 
of being in that relationship mm. with someone who is in such a uncertain situation. They know yeah. what's going to happen, yeah. but they don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah. And can that be scary? Can that be painful? Can that be uh, whatever it is? And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm there to offer a presence that I've been given by God. Yeah. To sit there and to try and be honest with them and to let them know that everything is going to be okay. Yeah. And that's where I came about from all of my experiences in in the church and the other uh, other chaplaincy and now with hospice and uh boy, I enjoy that that mm. time with families. It is it is really uh, a powerful moment. I think hospice takes you, in, you you see so many things. Yes. There are intense moments like you just shared, intense moments of finality. And I will talk about that. And uh, there are also other comical uh, <laughs> moments. So <laughs> I want us to get a little lighthearted here. <laughs> a little so bit what, comical. <laughs> what, comical. What, either it is, it is culture, like uh, one time... Um, I was called because there was a death. And as soon as I got out of the car and I'm walking into the house, the people burst into intense cry, you know, mm-hmm, all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I walk in, I'm thinking, you know, this is really intense grief. So the moment I walk in, they cry a little bit and then they keep quiet. And five minutes later, they were talking and laughing and, you know, uh, Yes, sharing good stories and laughing and having fun. And then another family member packs the car, and the moment he begins to walk towards his house, they burst into tears and crying. Again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> then he comes in, they keep crying, they talk. Mm-hmm. And then after about 20 minutes, another other family members come and they burst again in tears. So I could not understand. <laughs> I was <laughs> That's usually a cultural thing that goes on. Okay, so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm watching all these things going around me. I'm like, what is happening here? Yeah. You know, it was tough. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, it, it was it, quite something. Like, yeah, you just, it gets like a sketch. It, it kind of gets to the point where you're like, okay. You're you're the you're the chaplain. You're observing this, and you see it happen a couple of times. Then a third or fourth time come along, and yeah, then you kind of like just rolls your eyes and say, "Yep, that's going to happen again." <laughs> I mean, it's real. I mean, you, you know it's going to happen, and you, and you do, and, and and there's nothing you can do to change it or make it any better, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So have you have you encountered some weird or moments like that? Oh, I've been called into situations, saw where where you know. I'm the chaplain. I'm supposed to come in, and I'm supposed to make everything just peaceful and wonderful and all that. And I'm, I'm, and I just think it's, you know, I shake my head because I don't think we always understand when we walk into families, uh, where what's going on. Of course, we don't know. We just don't know. You know, you hear things like I just said about something cultural. Yeah. I know in the in the uh, Hispanic community that there's a high high incident of a lot of emotional outbursts, mm. yeah. crying, uh, and then there are other times that you know uh, other families will actually be sitting around drinking beers or whatever it is and just talking their stories and laughing and all that. Mm. Uh, but I I've, I was called once where there was a family that was in the in the room and. You know, I was told that they were just going to be uh, a very difficult situation for me to to be with. And, you know, because I walk in and they were, I don't know if it's because I'm the chaplain, mm. which can be, but everybody became almost too appropriate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were just perfect. I'm like, okay, why am I here? Everything's going right. Everything is exactly as it's supposed to be. Yes. And... You know, that's the power of our presence. And, you know, it's, uh, oh, I just remember this one patient before she died and how I was invited to be there. This this woman had a, and I had, and the dog, Mizuno, had a very, she loved Mizuno and she wanted to see Mizuno before she died. Mm. I was on vacation 
and I'm reading all these things on my phone about what's happening with this patient of mine. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, she's going to die before I get back home. I get back in, and I go see her with Mizuno, and she has enough strength and enough, uh, enough to waken up, pet Mizuno, smile at me. Wow. And I'm like, it's okay, you can go now. And of course, she dies the next day. Wow. And, you know, I participated, and, and her niece was there, who was always the one who was taking care of her. And I participated in the funeral. And it was a joyous experience because mm. of that. Wow. And so I mean, those, that's, that's, the, that's yeah. and that was part of it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you don't, we don't get those all the time. Yeah. You know, families, families do say they don't want us to come by and I don't know why not. Mm. Uh, you know, I've, you know, I've got my, I had my priest come by. I don't need you to come by. And I'm like, but we do different things than a priest would do or yeah. their, or their parish minister. Yeah. You know, depending on the family, they can, they can make it quite an emotionally uplifting experience. Yeah. And I've been in many of those, you know? Yes. So my experience, I struggled to interpret it. I thought for a moment, I'm like, is this, theater is this grief theater or oh, morning or wow. morning theater yeah and that uh, you have to show even if you've really grieved and you're fine but you yeah. have to show to the guests that you're actually grieving so <laughs> I, that's a good that's a good observation because i hear that see that too yeah so i was torn whether to laugh or Especially when the third group came in, I, I just had to walk away because yep. I, I might bust into laughter here. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a little inappropriate. <laughs> Terrible. I would have been kicked out. But I also know that some cultures, there's a sense of performance in mourning. I think you're right. Yeah. And uh, they feel like they have to show that outward performance. And I think it takes a lot out of families to, to, you know, to perform, yet yeah, they've already done the work and they're mm -hmm. okay. With not crying, you know, but yeah. the expectation is that they would cry and it can be challenging. So you've encountered a lot of uh, experiences, you know, and, and it looks like chaplaincy, hospice chaplaincy is, is it for you. Oh, it is for me. It yeah. has been for years and years now. So what are your final thoughts? Okay, my final thoughts. One of the struggles I remember we started out when we began our time together, mm. uh, was the feeling that chaplains were not essential. Yeah, during the pandemic. Starting of the pandemic, starting yes. all of that, and we and I felt like, with all the worded words that were said, that we weren't essential. And we, we, we ran across that a lot with the conversations we had with people. Yeah, yeah, last March, April, May. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just a reminder, as a reminder, how essential we really are. Uh, it was really interesting. I went to a facility yesterday, new patient. I haven't been in that facility probably close to two years ago. And... I walked into the door and the you know the door opens and I look at what's is before I can get into the facility and it said stop in big red letters. Mm. And then of course underneath it it said nobody's allowed in due to covid mm. restrictions. And I'm like, "Oh great, I drove here for this and find out that I can't step inside." So I get a phone call there there's a phone in there to talk to the person at the desk and they call up and I said, "Okay, hi, I'm with Angel's Grace Hospice." Uh, I'd like to visit my new patient. Da, 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 da. And okay, come on in. I'm like, what? I, I thought they were going to tell me, no, you can't come in. Yes. So I go in there and I walk in, I sign all the paperwork. I tell them what I'm done, you know, where I, you know, I'm, I've got my vaccination. I've, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. I've been tested, et cetera. I, so they say, okay. And then they take me into where this woman is in the, uh, uh, memory care area. And I'm walking in with a nurse. They said, oh, you're not a nurse? I said, no, I'm a chaplain. Oh, we've never had a chaplain back here. And I'm like, what? I'm thinking to myself, it's been a long time. Yeah. Wow. 
And I'm like, yes, you're going to be seeing me. Yeah. And that's, to me, we are essential. Yes. And um, my patient, who I had met years ago and actually was her husband's chaplain, uh, I spoke very loudly her name, and she looked at me and put a smile on her face. I have no idea if she knew who I was. It's just that somebody acknowledged her. Yeah. And that brings such joy to my heart, and I was able to sit with her for a while. And so I... I know that we bring a lot to this ministry and to this thing called hospice. Mm. And I don't want people to think otherwise. And I want them to take that stance and stand proudly that we are, we bring a certain, a real presence to this whole program. So in essence, your ministry matters as you work with the dying. If anyone who is listening this and is working with the dying in hospice or palliative care, your ministry matters. Uh, May is Mental Health Month, so make sure you take good care of yourself. If you need any help, please don't fail to reach out. Uh, You're not alone. Uh, Thank you for listening to this episode. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.